you might have heard the announcement a couple of weeks ago uh, that there's a, a new Star Wars movie uh, in production. You know, Star Wars is that gift, isn't it, that, that keeps on giving. Uh, just when you think that the story's finished uh, and all the pieces are put into place and you understand and Hollywood decides, no, there's a new angle, there's a new appendage, or, or worse still, uh, another trilogy. Now, for those of us who were around it in 1983 and you watched The Return of the Jedi, now, I understand that, that for some of us, 1983 sounds like ancient history. It's not quite. Uh, but everyone who was there in 1983, we knew that there was one final Jedi, Luke Skywalker. And then fast forward to 2017 and we discover in the second installment of the third trilogy, no, Luke is no longer the last Jedi. Now, a lot of history kind of runs like this as well. Um, politics and philosophy, science, uh, anything that has theories and rules or, you know, often evolve and change and expand, don't they? Uh, even when it comes to sport, commentators need to be careful when they are using superlatives and they are suggesting, he is the greatest or we will never see the likes of her talent again. You know, the, the final word is rarely the last word. Someone else comes up or there's new information or technology changes. There's something always, you know, things are constantly changing and on the move. And this makes the book of Hebrews audacious and bold because God is saying he has spoken the final word. Now, the opening four verses of this book, which we're going to be exploring this morning, they are among the most sophisticated and beautiful writing in, in the Greek language, which is the original language that the New Testament was written in. And the words have been composed by a, a master artist or by a, a skilled surgeon. They are beautiful and intricate and sophisticated. And that is, I'm going to put up a, a graphic there for you. Uh, now, foremost, what we're doing today is looking at the meaning of these words but as we work through the passage together, I think I just want to point out just for a moment something of the exquisite composition of this paragraph. That's a, a picture of Mount uh, Fuji. Now, in the original language, this paragraph is a single sentence. It is one flow of thought. It's a single flow of thought that is shaped like a, a mountain. And if you know anything about a mountain, and it, well, it's kind of obvious, the pinnacle, the peak is in the middle. And so here in this paragraph, the pinnacle or the climax of the argument is found in the very middle of the paragraph. But either side, I know that the writing is a little bit small, but on either side there are these pairs of statements that run parallel. They go together but run parallel. And what they're doing, they are building toward the center. All right, so that is how this opening paragraph uh, has been uh, put together, has been organized. And we're going to be looking at it uh, together this morning. As we do, though, let's pray and ask God to help us this morning. Father God, uh, we thank you for the book of Hebrews, uh, that it has been written uh, for us, that we might know you and understand Jesus and what he has done for us. And Father, as we begin to read through and study your word, this, this book together, starting today, please, we pray, help us to understand what you are saying to us. We pray that you might uh, reveal your son to us, that we might see and understand and believe and trust him and know the life that we can enjoy in his name. 
And Father, we ask that you'll be doing that good work in our hearts and minds and lives today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The novelist Paul Kingsworth wrote an interesting article last month with this title, Our Godless Era is Dead. It's a pretty catchy title. Our Godless Era is Dead. And here's a little bit of what he had to say. Whatever the precise components, I grew up believing in things which I now look on very differently. To put career before family, to accumulate wealth as a marker of status, to treat sex as recreation, to reflexively mock authority and tradition, to put individual desire before community responsibility, to treat the world as so much dead matter to be interrogated by the scientific process, to assume our ancestors were thicker than us, I did all of this, or tried to, for years. Most of us did, I suppose. Perhaps above all, and perhaps at the root of it all, there was one teaching that permeated everything. It was to treat religion as something primitive and absolute. Simply a bunch of fairy stories invented by the ignorant. Then he goes on to say, but what if a human being is not primarily a rational, bestial, or sexual animal, but in fact a religious one? And by religious, I mean inclined to worship, attuned to the great mystery of being. It's a fascinating question, isn't it? One of the things that we have enacted as a society, and uh, Kingsworth is sort of picking up on this, and and the way that he has been raised and the way he's been thinking and living his life, is that we've convinced ourselves that God, and specifically the Bible, is wrong. It's mistaken, it is arrogant, it is immoral. And so we've we've brushed it aside and we've tried instead to create new words, that is, new ideas and new meanings. So Paul Kingsworth is one of the the many now in in the Western world who are beginning to admit, hang on, we were wrong. We were too quick to push God aside. Now the book of Hebrews is going to show us, beginning today and for the next four or five months, It's going to show us that paying attention to God and his word isn't foolish, isn't stupid. It is the wise move. It's the right decision. And so Hebrews begins with this audacious statement about God and how God has spoken his final word. And so that's what we're going to be looking at this morning. God has spoken his final word. Let's take a look at verse 1. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. So we need to be clear about what this statement is and isn't saying. This isn't proof that every itch or every shiver or every unusual event is God speaking. That's not what the author is saying. This isn't evidence of somehow God must be speaking in different kinds of ways to all kinds of peoples in different places throughout all of history and in the jungles of the Amazon or the deserts of the Sahara or the grasses of the Russian steppe. Now we read God spoke to our ancestors, meaning to God's people. So the author is looking back to the Old Testament. So each time in Hebrews, when the author mentions ancestors, he is looking back, pointing back to Israel and her ancestors. 
So, for example, in chapter 11, when we get to it in May or June, uh, the author there is mentioning many of the ancestors, or just some of them, uh, Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Moses, and on and on. And so to these people, over many centuries and in different ways, God gave his words, but we're told though, through the prophets. He spoke through the prophets. So from Moses to Malachi, God spoke his words to his people. And sometimes it was accompanied with signs and wonders. God spoke to his people in different places, whether it was the city of Ur or in Egypt or Jerusalem or Babylon. And as the Old Testament progresses, as God is speaking more, God is showing more of himself, showing more of his character and his purposes. Now, these words that we call the Old Testament, they are good and true. But they're not the final word. The Old Testament isn't the end of the story. It's not the end of the song. And as verse 2 makes explicit, look with me. But... So notice there's a contrast coming, but in these last days, God has spoken to us by his son. Now, I know some Christians have a fascination with that phrase, uh, the last days. Uh, For some Christians, it's a bit of a hobby, and and they're researching and studying all the time and trying to guess the meaning of, of global events, and are these the last days, and trying to interpret these events, and Now, sometimes we can think of ourselves as kind of entering the last days. It just sort of feels like it, doesn't it? And and I suspect even today with all the the things that are going on around the world and in Australia, it feels like it's the last days. But then you watch some YouTube channel and you've got a Christian who's trying to convince us that the crazier things get or the more dangerous things become or the more terrible the events That must be the real sign that we're really getting into the last days as opposed to last week, which really wasn't quite so bad. But friends, we need to let the Bible define its own terms. The writer to the Hebrews is saying, and he's writing in the present tense, writing almost 2,000 years ago, meaning that when he was writing, it was the last days. Meaning the first people who picked up that letter and read it, they too were living in the last days. So the last days were as real and present then as they are today. You see, that phrase, the last days, it's one of the ways, not the only, but one of the ways the Bible describes the period of time between Jesus' first coming and his second So the last days is the totality of that period of time set by God When Jesus is reigning in heaven, his gospel is advancing, God is completing his work to reach the earth, to grow his church. And so that means whether it's 60 AD or 426 AD or 1555 or 2024, it is all the last days. And so in terms of the the, the big uh, schema of history, in terms of the big events, we are living in that final period of time as much as the Christians who first read the letter. And that's kind of helpful when you think about it because it actually closes the gap between the first readers and and ourselves. See, the words on these pages, they're not so distant or, or removed from us, but they are for us as well. And see what the writer to the Hebrews is saying. This final chapter of history, these last days, It is continuing until he returns, that is, sorry, Jesus returns. And until that end, 
God has spoken to us by his son. In these last days, God has spoken to us by his son. So there's a contrast here, isn't there, between God's former words and God's final words. Both are equally God's words. They both have authority, they're true and they're good, but there's also a difference. So the writer is not saying here that the Old Testament was wrong, not saying that it's misleading or irrelevant. As we read through the book of Hebrews, we're going to see a phenomenal number of Old Testament quotations and inferences, which proves the Old Testament remains God's words for us today. But there is also a contrast, and it's this. The Old Testament isn't the end of the story. As Hebrews later on talks about, it's like the shadow that's pointing to the reality, to the ultimate. Or the Old Testament's like the act one of a two-act play, and the son completes the act. Or the son is act two, the end of the story. He finishes the story. And as we read through these opening few verses, we're going to find there is a finality and sufficiency in this declaration about God's final word. God has spoken, and it's a definite, clear, decisive word by his son. That's really important to grasp. The means and the message of God's final word is his son. That is, if you want to know God, we must know his son. If you want to hear God speak, look to the son. The son is not an optional add-on like source. Do you add it to your food or not? Do you feel like it or not? He's not, he's not an add-on. He's not some extra piece of information that adds to God's former words. And neither is Hebrews suggesting that there are going to be future new words or amendments to add on top of the Son or to replace the Son. The Son is God's final and full word for us. You know, every sort of dodgy idea and false religion often begins with taking away bits of the Bible or trying to add new words to what God has already said. Uh, I've noticed in, in recently uh, a resurgence, um, not, not here, uh, and I pray not here, but among Christians around the world, there's a, there's a resurgence of a really old idea, but it's an unbiblical and it's a really unloving idea, and it's this. People don't need to hear the gospel of Jesus in order to know God. I've heard Christian leaders, senior Christian leaders saying this publicly. You don't, to know God, you don't need Jesus. And it's, it's the idea that you know, if, if you're living in a different country or coming from a different uh, place, a different background, people can connect with God in all kinds of ways and true ways and without needing personally to trust in Jesus. They're not saying Jesus is bad. They're not saying that uh, he, he's wrong. They're just saying it's not necessary. And I understand where some of these people are coming from because, you know, people are trying to guard against um, some really unhealthy things that are going on in our society. Uh, It's right when we recognize sins from history. We want to guard against racism and bigotry, which as Christians, we must be against those things, right? But it is simply not true or loving to say to a friend that you can know God truly and personally without coming through Jesus. Hebrews is saying God has spoken and it's a final word, a true word, and it is by his son. 
Jesus himself said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. So this is the final chapter of history. And in this final chapter of history, God has spoken a definitive final word. And it's about his son. Now, I guess we can communicate that to friends in a really uh, arrogant kind of way. But we can also say it with grace and love and earnestness. To believe this, it's not being bigoted. It's not being narrow-minded or reductionistic. Because God's final word is a word of grace, isn't it? A word of fullness. It's an announcement to the world, not only that God exists, but like the greatest discovery, there is God and he longs for us to know him. And we now can know him through his son. There is no word that is more urgent and vital than this word. So this is how the book of Hebrews begins. And the remainder of this opening sentence, this opening paragraph, is providing us with a series of statements about the Son. And these are going to be themes that the writer is going to pick up throughout his letter. And we're going to be studying some of these themes over the weeks ahead. But again, earlier I mentioned that the paragraph is written in a way where it's like a mountain peak. And so the highest point, like it's in the middle, And therefore, the most pivotal moment, in a sense, in this paragraph is found in the middle. But surrounding it and leading up to the mountaintop are these other statements that are paired together. Okay, But they're all about the sun. And what we're going to do now is just to read through all of these uh, features as we get to the, 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 the pinnacle. Now, there are seven statements here being made about the sun. We're just going to look briefly at each one. But we're going to start at the beginning, we're going to make our way up, and then down again. That's kind of how we're going to progress. Look at verse 2b with me. The son is appointed heir, we're told, whom he appointed heir of all things. Uh, An heir is a child who has been uh, promised or been set uh, uh, things by their parents, uh, set aside by your dad or mum. You're going to receive an inheritance one day. And people still write wills, don't they? I'm going to leave behind my old chair or my collection of opera LPs or some food in the fridge or what, something, you know, I'm going to leave behind, you know, in my will, you can inherit it one day when I die. Um, it's not quite that vibe, but the, you, know, you know that idea of inheritance. Or, or think of the, when the, the Queen Elizabeth died last year. When Queen Elizabeth died, her heir ascended to the throne. Her son, Charles, became king. Now, God is not giving up the throne. He's not going to die or anything like that so that his heir can take over. But the picture here, rather, is that the father is going to give his son a place and position in love to glorify him over all things. Because you see, the father loves his son. And he says, you're going to be the heir. You're going to inherit a great kingdom. You're going to be in the highest place. That's what we're told here. The second feature about the son The Son is the Creator. Verse 2b, through whom also he made the universe. So God the Son didn't come into existence around 4 BC in the the town of Bethlehem. This is something that we were looking at last year in John's Gospel. The Son isn't one of the created beings like us and like the animals or mountains and rivers. At a point in time, rather, the Son who is eternal 
took on human flesh, but he, as the Son, made the world. The Son isn't part of the universe. He is the creator of the universe. And this has all kinds of implications, doesn't it? Not least, you can't say about Jesus that he has nothing to do with the world today. We shouldn't be thinking of God as having no business in our lives or in the events of history. It's his world. He made it. A third feature about uh, the sun, and now we're at the very top of the mountain now, the sun is God. So in the middle of these flourish of statements about the sun is this climatic statement that the sun is God. Look at verse 3. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. That is what it's saying is all that God is, the sun is. The sun radiates or manifests God's glory. He is the exact image of God's being. That the word, the image, think of a, of a coin. It's like each one is like an exact replication or replicate. It's, it's identical. So the, and the original is God, but the sun is the exact replica of God because he is God. And in a sense, what it's saying about the sun is there is a distinction, but also identity, similarity. He is the exact representation of God, for he is God. That is, you see Jesus, we see God, what God is like. To see Jesus is to see God's character. To know Jesus is to know God. And all of God's characteristics and attributes belong to the Son. They are his. So the Son isn't a lesser God which sometimes you, you read about in, in cults like uh, Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormons. He's not a, an inferior or lower grade or just part of God, like you might find in, say, in ancient Greek or Egyptian deities. He is fully, eternally God. Other religions sometimes teach, oh, yeah, Jesus is a, an important prophet. Oh, he's a man of, of moral example. I mean, even atheists kind of like Jesus. They think he was a pretty decent bloke and maybe we should behave more like him. But those representations fall short of what has been declared here and therefore they misrepresent him. He is God. Can you imagine if some government bureaucrat reduced you to a, a serial number? Just to your, your driver's license number or your passport number. You kind of get that vibe sometimes, don't you, when you, you're ringing up the, the ATO or, or someone and, and you're trying to fix something because you always need to you know, update or fix something and, and all they want is your number, your reference number, and you feel like that's the, the, the sole totality of your identity to them is just like a number. Or maybe think at work and, and people there think of you as nothing more than an accountant or a teacher, or a nurse, and they just ignore everything else about you, or they, they don't, they're not interested in anything else about you, including your name and your character and your likes and your dislikes. Friends, the pinnacle of God's revelation to humanity is his son. And the highest point of that revelation is that the son is God. And even for Christians who've grown up and, and we've understood and we've believed this for years, can I encourage you, don't become so familiar with this idea that it kind of just loses its weight and its worth. 
if you believe that, if you said that in parts of the world today, no, I believe Jesus is God, you could be thrown into prison. You could have a mob come around to your home and kill you. I know Aussies tend not to take things too seriously about God and neither do we want to encourage that kind of behaviour in Australia. But understand what has been spoken here, it is audacious and confronting. We are not living in a God-free or God-absent cosmos. The sun is revealing God. A fourth attribute or feature about the sun here is in verse 3b. The Son sustains all things by his word or with his word. So not only did Jesus create the universe, but he's involved in the world even today, right up into this very moment. He is sustaining everything with his word. Whether we recognize it or not, that's what Jesus is doing today. And five and six, let's do these ones together. Summarize it as this, the Son is Redeemer. The Son is the Redeemer. Let's keep reading. After he had provided purification for sins, that's five, then six, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So there we learn that Jesus, the eternal son, has provided the perfect sacrifice for sin. By his death on the cross, he has provided what God requires, what we need, that our sins be removed. That's good news, isn't it? All of us carry around a history of guilt and and sin, but Jesus, God's only son, has died with all of it for us. And having finished that work, we're told he sat down. So Jesus hasn't vanished from the pages of history. He hasn't disappeared or ceased to exist today. He is seated on his throne in heaven and governing and overseeing and judging and redeeming all there is. And the fact that Jesus has seated down following the cross, it's a sign of confirmation. It's saying Jesus' death is not just another death, but it was a sufficient death. He rose from the grave and now he has seated That is God's provision of salvation. It is done and it can't be undone. It can't be improved upon. It can't be changed. We're not looking for something else or something more. No, God has spoken. His final word is about his son and the word of salvation through his son. You see that? And then seven and finally, the last feature, which comes up in verse four, the son is superior to angels. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. Now, I'm going to come back to this theme next Sunday, so I'm not going to really elaborate it on now. Um, Wait for for next Sunday. Come back next Sunday. Okay? But that's the seven features. The sun is superior to the angels. Now, let's come back to ourselves. All of us need to ground life in something certain, and something that's good. Now, we're all trying to do this, whether consciously or subconsciously. We're all trying to do this in life, aren't we? Trying to navigate and define that security, that, 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 that certain ground for which I can grow and have life. We're all relying on people or different ideas. There's something to give us meaning and life. Now, I think there is something healthy about challenging the status quo and evaluating ideas. That's a good thing to do. 
But at the moment, we seem to live in this world that is obsessed with the new or with the experimental, as though new or experimental is better or superior. And this fascination that we have as a society with the new and for change, though, it doesn't always help us in that search for truth or for forgiveness or for hope. Over the last few months, there have been a number of high-profile celebrities in Australia and overseas who have either become Christians or have started or you know, as in declared publicly that they're investigating this person called Jesus and they're now going along to church. And, and they share how after years of experimenting and trying to fill up life with all kinds of stuff and success, it's like it, there's this interesting move um, or a mood that's changing society at the moment. And people are beginning to realise actually maybe the answer all along has been there. But we were too proud to accept it, or we were too greedy to look to it. A long-lost painting by the famous Viennese artist Gustav Klimt was recently discovered, rediscovered. You might have heard about it in the news. It's going to be auctioned shortly for tens of millions of dollars. I can't remember the exact figure that they were, they were estimating, but something between 40 to $60 million that they were going to sell this painting for. But the painting had been lost for 100 years and, and mostly forgotten. Few remember that it even had existed. But now it's been uncovered and it's been shown to the world again. And again, people are viewing it and, and gazing upon it and, and, and enjoying seeing this work of art until someone pays for it and hides it again. But... And, and the illustration, though, is serving to st- help us see there are millions of Australians, and we know many of them, and maybe you are one of them, who, say, as young children attended Sunday school. Or perhaps you went to a church school and so you would attend cha- uh, a chapel service a few times a year. Or you join your family and you visit church over Christmas time. But then you started to grow up, and as you were growing up, we made that mistake of thinking, all that God stuff really Either it's a fairy tale or it's just not that important to me. And we begin to rationalise and to reason why we shouldn't take Jesus that seriously. But the reality of life eventually hits. And we need someone to take that burden of sin from us and for us. We all need hope. We all need peace. And no matter how hard we try, we cannot find it in ourselves. For example, if, if you're, say, a teenager now and you're thinking, yeah, all right, at the moment I'm obliged to go along to church, but when I hit 16 or 18 or 21 or whatever age it is, I'm going to ditch all that Christian stuff. I'm just going to go on it alone, do my own thing. Friend, do not make that mistake. Jesus is God's final word and it is God's sufficient and good word. And if he is not enough, then what are you looking for? And I suspect what you are looking for is some sense of validation. There is an idea or a dream or a desire that you feel and you want to pursue that. And you're going to ditch God unless he approves of it for you. But you know he's not going to approve of it because he loves you too much. Friends, if Jesus is, is he really worthy of our worship if he's going to keep changing and accepting all kinds of things just to accommodate all our desires? Is that a loving God? 
Now, Jesus is worthy of our worship because he knows our sin and knowing our sin, he died to purify us and to save us. Yes, the Star Wars franchise has started working on a new film. Who knows where this latest story is going to end and no doubt it's going to keep on coming. Let us not look for a different word or for new revelations from God. God is not offering any. And how do I know that? Because God says so here. We don't need a new word. God has spoken. Look to Jesus and see who he is. Understand his sacrifice for sin. Understand where he is seated today and bow down and worship him and receive a share of his inheritance that he has won for us.